It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, John Riley. We welcome you to our weekly Thursday podcast. We're based in San Diego, talking to sports fans up and down the West Coast. John, good afternoon. Have we got a lot of topics on the table? We've got a lot of important stuff to talk about. But I want you to explain to all of our viewers on YouTube and Facebook who are with us live how they can participate, and also how they can subscribe to get the notifications when we add things to our podcast, not just on our Thursday live stream, but when we add stuff day by day through the week. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. There's a, let's, let's put it all on the table. So when you want to subscribe to the show, let's say you're watching this on YouTube, um, on Lee Hacksaw Hamilton on the YouTube channel, you know, click on subscribe, click on the bell. And when, when you do that, you will get notifications when there is a new episode and definitely when there's a new live stream. Um, of course, we encourage you to, to like and follow on all the social media platforms. But today, in today's podcast, you have a chance to participate. We have Fans Forum, where Lee Hacksaw Hamilton will take your questions and comments. Um, just type them in into the comments section and Facebook and YouTube. We'll see them on, the, uh, on our screen here, and we'll have the Fans Forum at the end of the podcast episode. As I would say, here's what's going on in the world of sports. Here's what Lee Hamilton and John Riley think. John, pick a topic, and I bet I know what you're going to ask because you were there. Have your ears stopped ringing with the Padre home games at Petco Park in the playoffs? No, I was there yesterday, and, I mean, it it started out bad. Um, We were really worried, but it finished great. And, boy, the energy and the gas lamp coming out of that game, people chanting, let's go Padres, as we were exiting the stadium, it's a a great, great situation for San Diego, not just for the team, but for the city and the community. Padres off day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Philadelphia. And there's a whole bunch of questions we're going to talk about as they get ready to walk into Citizens Bank Park. This will not be an easy weekend for the Padres, but this is a Padres team that has to feel better about itself right now based on 13 base hits against Philadelphia as they climb back into the series to make it 1-1 going to the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, the bats came alive. I mean, they were they were dormant. The only guy who got a hit in Game 1 was Will Myers. But boy, did the, 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 the guys that A.J. Preller traded for, Drury and Bell um, and Soto, came in with clutch hits. And then, of course, the Nola-Nola matchup worked out in the Padres' favor as well. The most unique thing to me about what's going on with the Padre batting order is they're not hitting as a team very well. But they have big innings that all of a sudden show up and make a difference. Big innings in the Mets series, a weird beginning in the Dodgers series, strange beginning that just kind of got rolling, rolling, rolling in the victory over Philadelphia. Not a complete batting order right now, not hitting outside of Manny Machado, but they're still dangerous. And you snap your fingers and say, boy, how come that can't happen more often rather than once every third game? Yeah, it's like the, the we trade for these home run hitters and they get to San Diego and they turn into Chris Denorfia, you know, and, and they struggle to hit. There's no power. I mean, Bell, Soto, Drury were just killing it. And that's why Preller traded for them. And they come here and and they just become a completely different hitter. Are they trying too hard? I think that's what uh, Josh Bell was saying. I think there's a lot of pressure on these guys. And I think that's one of the pieces of the equation. I also think the ballpark, John, before we talk about statistics, the ballpark plays really differently day versus night. And I'll, I'll throw you a historical footnote. I remember the first weekend the Padres were in Petco Park. First time ever. Played the Giants. And Barry Bonds hit six balls that I thought were gone. They got caught at the warning track. Now, the dimensions were much deeper the first year the Padres played. Dimensions stayed that way for a group of years. And I thought to myself, holy cow, this is going to be hard for guys to hit the ball out. Well, they brought the fences in and they've changed the outfield arrangement to a degree. But I do think the atmospherics at Petco have changed. Maybe it's got something to do with all the buildings that have been built around, all those hotels that have changed the wind flow. And obviously humidity and daytime sunshine versus nighttime cool air 
has really changed the dimensions or the dynamics of how to hit at Petco Park. So I think that's a strange, strange item. Let's look at these stats. Padres are still playing baseball, despite the fact, John, they're hitting two thirty-three as a team in postseason. <laughs> wow. Two thirty-three. But then again, nobody else is hitting. I think the collective batting averages of all the teams heading into Friday's game might be two eleven in postseason play. So pitchers are dominating. But, you know, Manny is hitting three oh six based on the big game that he had uh on, on Wednesday. Soto's hitting only two twenty-two in the postseason. Bell is hitting 229, and that's after he had a really big game uh, against Philadelphia. Drury's hitting 158. Will Myers is hitting a buck 15. So it, it's been really tough on these guys. But then again, they're no different than what happened with the Dodgers, what's happened with the Cardinals, what happened with the other playoff teams that are out of the series. Nobody is hitting. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you get in the playoffs. This is when the top pitchers are shining. They're the ones that have led their team into the postseason. And then all these teams play great defense. And then you've got the shift going on. It's just really hard to kind of get a ball through the hole in the infield. So it makes sense that batting averages are going to be a little low when these pitchers are dominating. Yeah, really valid point. Batting averages are not low at Citizens Bank Ballpark, where they play Friday afternoon in Philadelphia. I went through, did some research. The Phillies have only played a couple of home games in the postseason because they've been on the road. But they're hitting three thirteen with five bombs in two playoff games at home. Philadelphia on the season, team batting average, two sixty. Hmm. Philadelphia, 107 home runs at home. Philadelphia, 255 extra base hits at Citizens Bank Ballpark. I guess to a degree, that's a pretty good home field advantage. Yeah, I mean, they, they call it a bandbox, right? Because it's just easy to, to jack them out of that park. But you know what? The Padres have got a lot of home run hitters now, too. And so if Bell has figured it out, we've got Drury. I think Myers is probably going to start on the bench. So you got Drury, you got Bell, you got Machado. Cronenworth still hasn't really, you know, his power hasn't been there yet. We saw a little bit in the Dodgers series, but the, the Padres have a lot of upside for power. Philadelphia stats go into Friday's game. Kyle Schwarber's hit 21 home runs at home this season. Reese Hoskins has hit 18 home runs at home. JT Riomoto, 12 bombs at home. Uh, in terms of batting average, and I remember Bryce Harper missed half the home schedule with the broken thumb. He's only hit nine home runs, only batting 244 at home, but Bryce Harper in postseason, now healthy, is hitting the daylights out of the ball. Castellanos hitting just 250 at home. Third baseman Alec Bone, 292. Second baseman Jean Shigura, 282. Uh, and Brad Marsh, who came from the Angels of the trade deadline for some reason, hitting 296 in home games for Philadelphia. Now, Friday pitching matchup Joe Musgrove against a young guy, Ranger Suarez. Padres have to win on Friday. Joe's got to keep the ball in the yard because Saturday, when we get to game four, they're going to have to give it to either Mike Clevenger or to Sean Manaya, or both are going to wind up pitching. And I don't know that we can all feel good about where those guys are at this point of the season in terms of being trustworthy on the mound. So Friday's game is huge. Yeah, I mean, you got to think Musgrove needs to pitch like he did against the Mets. Hopefully they're not checking his ears. But I, my understanding is, is that when the Padres went to Philly in May, Clevenger had a really good outing. I mean, he went five innings of shutout ball. So if we get that Clevenger, we're in great shape. Yeah, but that's Clevenger pre-injury issues. That's Clevenger before the knee flared. That's Clevenger before the forearm tendonitis came back. So I don't know that we can equate what happened in spring as to what's going to happen now in late fall. So Friday's game, Friday's game is just hugely critical. Padres, Philadelphia. Next team you want to talk about because as good as that new is in San Diego. It's not good up the road in Los Angeles. You know, it seems like Padre fans just take so much glee in seeing the demise of the Dodgers. Um, so uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, they've got a lot of stuff to figure out. Andrew Friedman held a very emotional press conference this week after they were eliminated by the Padres. He called it an un organizational failure. The biggest disappointment in the eight years that he has run the ball club. 
The fact the Dodgers, who had beaten the Padres so often over the last year and a half, got beat themselves in the postseason. And there's an enormous amount of heat. And I'm not talking about the weather and humidity (laughs) and Santa Ana's. There is so much heat being directed at Dodger baseball right now for what happened. Uh, Item one, manager Dave Roberts. 100% backing from the president of the team. This was not on him. Now, I take exception to that because I think Dave Roberts and his staff of thinkers, including that pitching coach Mark Pryor, who I like, I like both those guys, respect both those guys, but they have failed six times in seven years to utilize their pitchers correctly, whether that's yanking a starter early, whether that's taking a starter and putting him in a bullpen to pitch in a critical game between a guy's regular starts, or the just gross overuse of of the bullpen. Dave Roberts has done it consistently, 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 and I think it's one of the reasons they're out. Now, there is another reason. They did not hit. Get this stat. Mookie Betts in the playoff series with the Padres, a buck forty three. Hmm. Justin Turner, one fifty seven. Cody Bellinger, missing person, one forty seven. Will Smith, 188. They left 32 guys on base in five games. So the bats deserve heat and criticism, in addition to what I think is the pitching mistakes by the manager, Dave Roberts. And your take? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it last time. Roberts has had a disappointing season. But you mentioned last time, you know, the analytics guys in the Dodgers front office, they're they're grinding through the numbers, crunching the numbers. They're giving a lot of guidance, uh, maybe demands to Dave Roberts to manage in certain ways based on the data. So sometimes I wonder if free is covering for his guy Roberts because maybe it's Friedman's staff that's giving Roberts bad advice. I think those guys need to stand up and say we made a mistake. Yanking Tyler Anderson out of the last Dodger game when he had thrown five shutout innings and was not laboring in terms of pitch count and had not been in trouble, had not had any stressful innings. Yanking him at that point and going to the bullpen in the sixth inning when you knew your bullpen had been used a lot, and you knew there was another game to be played if you survived the Tyler Anderson start. Why would you ever yank the starting pitcher throwing a shutout out of the game at that point, considering there had been no stress at all? It's just a prime example of the bad decisions that they've made dating back to the first group of gears that they they won with Dave Roberts at the helm. The, the, the misuse, gross overuse of Brandon Morrow, the ex-Padre closer, the same thing they did a couple of years later with Joe Kelly, and then what they did with Kershaw, what they did with Scherzer, what they did with Urias, pulled them out of the rotation, made them pitch in between their starts, which meant fatigue. If I'm a Dodger fan, yeah, I think I'd be blowing hot air in the direction of Andrew Friedman. And biggest payroll in baseball. And they got taken out by the Padres. Granted, the Padres are healthy and the Padres are hot, but this I don't think this should have ever happened. So Dodger fan... They got every right to be angry, and that organization needs to figure it out, answer some questions. And they got tough roster questions that that have to be answered uh, in the coming months. Uh, Andrew Friedman said, we don't need a different voice in terms of the manager. He says the biggest decision we have to make, was this baseball-related or was this leadership-related? Well, we just gave you the stats of the guys that didn't hit, and I've critiqued the manager, who I think has made a lot of mistakes in terms of the handling of pitching. Uh, Their batting average? Runners in scoring position, San Diego series, 147. Wow. And they had a lot of guys on base that whole series. Yeah, they did. It's a huge issue. They left 32 guys on base in the five playoff games against the Padres. Dodgers, enjoy your offseason because the Padres are still playing ball. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of arrogance with that organization. And even like Bill Platschke and some of the, you know, writers, you know, calling San Diego cute. We're not, they're not our rival and all that BS. And here comes the Padres and knocks them off. So as a San Diego fan as a San Diegan, we love seeing, you know, the the big the big guy get a punch in the nose. But if you're a fan of the Dodgers, you've got to ask serious questions of that leadership in that organization, especially considering how much money they're spending. Um, you know, they're not getting the bang for the buck. If the Padres had failed, if the Padres had not made the playoffs with this payroll, if the Padres had gotten executed in the first round of the playoffs, I'd be pretty critical of the Padres. Instead, we'll just 
direct the criticism up I-5 <laughs> right. to Dodger Stadium mm-hmm. in Chavez Ravine. One other baseball note comes from the third team in Southern California. And, John, I don't like this storyline at all. I don't like if I read between the lines of what has just been said in Anaheim with the Angels. Yeah, I mean, Shoei Otani, some people say, is the face of baseball when he signed a one-year deal uh, for $30 million, and he's hinting that he's not happy in, in Anaheim. His, his direct quote upon landing in Tokyo uh, with a Japanese reporter was, I have a negative feeling about 2022 in Angel Baseball. And this is from your superstar. He will make $30 million next year on the final year of his contract. Who knows whether or not he would be willing to sign a contract extension or whether or not his agent would take him on to the free agent market. I mean, we're talking about a special guy here. Over August and September into October, he hit 305 on a lousy team. In those three months, his ERA, John, as a starting pitcher, was 1.62. How phenomenal is that? But never been to a playoff game? Five years of losing records, been through all these different managers. Now, things are, have to change, and they've begun to change in Anaheim. They've, they've obviously got Otani. they got the superstar Mike Trout, who's fought through a lot of injuries, finished up strong. they got Anthony Rendon, the big free agent third baseman, has been hurt and hurt. Finally got back at the end of the season, did not do much. Their pitching staff may be... As, as negligible as there is in Major League Baseball, they got a massive job to go find arms to complement what bats they have. Phil Nevin, contract extension, one more year as manager. They fired three coaches in a span of about 18 hours this week. So there are going to be some changes on that bench and on the baselines working with Phil Nevin. But, man, they have an awful lot of work to do. And, by the way, the un- unwritten story, elephant in the room story, Ownership. Who will it be? Artie Moreno is taking offers to sell the team. Will there be new ownership in place before we get to the winter baseball meetings? Because that's when all the wheeling and dealing begins as it relates to free agent signings and as it relates to trade. So, boy, there's a lot of uncertainty in in Anaheim. I mean, the givens are they got three really good players, but they don't have very much pitching. So an awful lot of answers they have to find, and they have to do it fairly quickly because, pal, we're at the end of October, and the winter meeting is the first week of December here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember going back when Otani first came to the United States, and, you know, A.J. Preller made a big pitch to get him here in San Diego, he even learned Japanese to, in his presentation. But it seemed like Anaheim kind of came out of left field. They weren't really one of the early favorites to sign him. And so... I'm wondering, Otani is probably kind of kicking himself. Maybe I picked the wrong team because uh, it's all gone sideways um, with the Angels. But you figure he's got a one-year deal. If if the Angels are smart, they'll they'll part they'll they'll trade him and try to get some talent in the door because they don't seem they're able to build around the guy. Um, and imagine what he would look like on the trade market. You're saying that, but if this had been 20 years ago, small market San Diego. Do you think you'd be saying that about trade Tony Gwynn? Well, I mean, well, Gwynn was a San Diego guy. I mean, you know, San Diego State, he was he was part of this community. I don't know. How does Otani feel about Southern California? Is this- well, well, that's why he's here. Right. He could have come here. He could have gone to Seattle, which had a history mm-hmm. with great Japanese players. He elected to come to Southern California. Uh, I, I think he's, he's a magical player. I think he's a mystical person. I think he's dedicated. I think he's honest. So it's at the front door of uh, Perry Manasian, the general manager, fix this franchise to keep that player. Mm. Okay, before we roll into the National Football League again, for everybody that's with us on our Facebook and YouTube feeds, uh, follows us on Twitter and all the audio platforms, John, explain again how people can register uh, to be alerted the minute we put something new up, because not only we do a Thursday podcast, we package some things and make it available every day of the week. Yeah, we do. And and so um, what we do is, you know, we have the Thursday podcast. It's usually, you know, 30 to 60 minutes long, but then we actually cut them up into pieces. We have little, all of our chapters are available that you can view and we release them. Yeah. Like two or three a day throughout the course of the week. You can get alerts. If you sign up on YouTube, if you click on 
on the subscribe button at Lee Hacksaw Hamilton on the YouTube channel. Um, and then click on the bell. That will give you the alerts when new content is available. All right, let's talk NFL football because we've got big games. We're kind of marching seasons really rolled, rolled on or almost to the middle of the NFL season. You want to start with the Chargers? Yeah, I mean, the San Diego Chargers are kind of a this funky thing. you know. Uh, they, Los Angeles Chargers. Oh, the Los Angeles Chargers, yeah. Um, the Los Angeles Chargers are this funky situation because they looked great on paper, had all those injuries. They, they've been sort of stumbling through in Cleveland, stumbling through in Denver. Um, I'm not sure what to make of this team. I don't know where they are because they could have lost, should have lost in Cleveland, almost lost to last place Houston, and struggled and might have lost to a really bad Denver Bronco team. So I don't know that there's a heck of a lot here, and I refuse to use the name of where they play. I don't know where <laughs> they are as a team. The Chargers are. But I'll tell you what, they need to be alarmed about something. The injuries are one thing, and that's, that, that's out of their control. Here's a huge question. Did they make a terrible mistake on this guy? This was the marquee cornerback who was on the free agent market. J.C. Jackson, cornerback, New England Patriots, 25 interceptions in a a four-year span. He can't play right now. He just does not fit the system. They gave him a $40 million million guarantee as part of an $82 million contract, and they benched him. They benched him because he continues to give up big plays. He's given up 14 passes, a couple of touchdowns, taken two major pass interference penalties, and has just gotten beat on a ton of plays. He's only played four of the six games. And now we find out that he said this way, his confidence is really shaken. He said, hey, when I was in New England with Belichick, I was a press corner at the line of scrimmage. I knocked those guys off the ball, and my athleticism allowed me to catch up to them and all that. This is a very, very different defense that Brandon Staley is running. It's a read-react, and it's got a lot of complexities, and he keeps blowing coverages. Last week, he gave up passes of 39 for a touchdown, 47 for another, and then took a big pass to the front penalty on top of that. He just looks lost out there. He Receivers are going by him. Whatever he's doing in terms of his technique, I'm handing this receiver off to that safety, or do I drop as somebody hands a receiver off to me? I mean, it's a nightmare. He just does not look like the same player. It's a very, very different system. Question is, did they make a mistake? As, as sexy and shiny as all those interceptions were, did they make a mistake giving this guy this kind of money, knowing full well, had to teach him a different, different defense? And he can't grasp it. And he's been there since the mini camps open, it's not like he hadn't been here for two or three weeks trying to learn a system on the go. Mm-hmm. This is, to me, it's really stunning. Yeah, I mean, you you, it's, you kind of wonder also when when these guys get that payday. You know, do they settle down? Do they maybe not? Are they not as aggressive? Are they not as focused because they finally cash in? I'm not saying that's what's happening with Jackson, but you sometimes wonder when there's such a drop off in performance. Yeah, it's it's amazing. They got half a season to play. They they put him back. He will start at cornerback again against Seattle. And by the way, when he lines up, that's DK Metcalf. That's Tyler Lockett. Those are two big play receivers that the Seahawks have Mm -hmm. coming off the line of scrimmage. So this bears watching. Boy, what a week of controversy around the National Football League at the owners' meetings, John. Yeah, the, these it's interesting. These you know billionaire owners, these rich guys, they're almost like cartoon characters fighting amongst themselves. And there's controversy. People, uh, owners calling out owners. I mean, what's going on now? Well, we'll talk about Daniel Snyder. He is kind of in, in the crosshairs of everybody in the NFL as to whether he should keep this franchise, whether he should be forced to sell the franchise. He is back in day-to-day control of the franchise, John, after this one-year suspension, $10 million fine for the toxic uh, culture that existed in Washington. But there are five different investigations that have gone on with Daniel Snyder's ownership. Uh, It had been theorized that the league owners would meet and just talk about the status of the Washington franchise, which is in real disrepair. And what happened was the decision was made, we're not going to have the dialogue at this point. And then out of nowhere... Daniel Snyder gets smoked in a 10,000-word essay on ESPN (laughs) about all his wrongdoings as the owner of the Washington Redskins commanders. He writes a letter to all the owners. The ESPN essay at the front end 
indicated it was supposed to be an investigative piece that Daniel Snyder had talked to people in his organization that I have all this dirt and I can out all these owners for all the stuff they've done, including Roger Goodell. That's a bad look. That's a really bad optic. We don't know if that conversation took place, but the fact he ESPN's not been sued by this guy leads me to believe, yeah, his arrogance allowed that conversation to take place, and now the word's gotten out. Daniel Snyder wrote letters to every NFL owner and to Goodell, denying emphatically what was insinuated in the ESPN essay. He indicated, I'd be willing to meet with each of you individually to talk about what was reported as it relates to my relationship with Goodell, my relationship with Jerry Jones, with Stan, Kroenke, et cetera, et cetera. They never brought it up for a vote. But then the other guy in the room, Jim Irsay, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, went public. And he's a little bit of a loose cannon. He's a free thinker. He's had his own set of issues as the owner of the Colts after his dad gave him the franchise. But Jim Irsay spoke out and say any investigation or discipline action against Snyder merits consideration. So he knows he has a lot of inside data. And he indicated Where's the accountability? We as owners have a responsibility in the community. And he quoted the Maras and he quoted the Roonies and he quoted the great owners of decades and decades that made the NFL successful. He says, where's the accountability? Making reference to the accountability in Washington. Story is far from over. Kind of stole the headlines at at the NFL owners meetings. They elected not to take action uh, at this point against Daniel Snyder. However, there is a league-wide probe investigation that's about to be finished up. Whether or not there's going to be an actual presentation of a Republic report to everybody remains to be seen. But Snyder's got all kinds of problems. And by the way, he's got a pretty bad football team, too. And he's lost his starting quarterback. Uh, I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, we're, we're right in the thick of the NFL season. We should be talking about touchdowns and winning streaks and setting records. But instead, it's concussion uh, syndrome situation and protocol. And it's the owners fighting amongst themselves and all this off the field nonsense. I mean, this this is destructive to the NFL brand, in my opinion. Well, as Jim Irsay said, the shield has been damaged. Yeah, there's a lot of issues off the field in the NFL. And there was quite an issue on the field in the Tampa Bay game this past week. Uh, that's the other topic we're going to talk about. I'll raise this question. Tom Brady's very frustrated. Uh, Tom Brady's going through a tough time personally, an impending divorce. It's become a public story. He's kind of peeved at the media that you should not be covering my private life this way. My private life is my private life, et cetera, et cetera. But he's the one that also took 10 days off in the midst of training camp, which was an important time to get ready for the start of the season, go deal with his personal crisis. And then they're not playing well. And if a lot of injuries at wide receiver, he doesn't have his complete offense around him. And he had a really wretched game. And they got beat. They got beat by the Steelers. Go figure that. And he he came unglued uh, in, in the third quarter of the game with his offensive lineman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just ripped them and everybody, full sight of everybody. And by the way, was picked up on live mics, chastising his offensive lineman because he was getting sacked and hit and pressured and weren't making plays. Now we find out after the game that Tom Brady missed practice on Friday, walked through, did not take part in team meetings on Saturday. Why? He was at New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft's wedding. So where's his focus? You know, he's got every right to be upset at teammates, maybe not doing their job, uh, maybe be frustrated because he doesn't have two of his three receivers and he keeps losing tight ends to injuries and, and concussions. But he's barking about his guys when he wasn't there, wasn't there Friday, wasn't there Saturday. I've never heard that. So it raises the question, has Todd Bowles got a different set of rules for Tom Brady at this point in time, which is kind of a critical point in time of the season? I don't know. Brady You know, Brady needs to come up with a proper answer here because I think if it were my quarterback, my quarterback could be in those meetings and those walkthroughs. I don't care about him going to Robert Kraft's wedding in Foxborough, Massachusetts. I, I, bad decision. 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the Allen Iverson. It's like we talking about practice, yeah. we talking about the game. <laughs> so you know he's not there for practice when he needs to be, you know, to support his teammates. But how can he say, uh, you know, uh, my private life is private when you are? Everyone calls you the goat. You're playing quarterback in the NFL at the age of 45, and you married like one of the top supermodels in the world. I mean, this guy is access Hollywood fodder. That's part of what he signed up for. That's kind of part of how he built his image, his personal TB12 brand. And then, you know, things tragic in his in his personal life. But you can't say, well, hey, that's my personal life. Don't intrude. He's he's a celebrity that kind of comes with the package. Oh, you're just running down the highway looking for more junk to talk about. I, I, I don't think this is should be part of the equation. You know, if if there were a violation of law, if there were an incident of abuse, I mean, I understand marriages go off track and divorce is part of society today. Mm-hmm. I understand that. But this is just two people going different directions after many, many years uh, in the NFL lifestyle. This is not that somebody cheated on somebody or somebody got arrested or there's domestic abuse. So I think to a degree, even though I'm a working member of the media, I think this is a little bit off track to be going to chase down the the divorce lawyer that she hired or the one that's going to represent him. Uh, from pro football, on we go to college football. It's a Thursday. That means there's another quarterback controversy at San Diego State. <laughs> Stop laughing, John. This is not funny. I mean, it, the this, again, more drama, you know, what's going on with the Aztecs and their quarterback situation. Um they're going to play Nevada, right? Is that where they're headed to this weekend? Nevada this week, Fresno next week, crossroads game in the schedule. So apparently Jalen Maiden is QB1, right? He's got the, the starting job. He, he had the magical game against Hawaii. Can he repeat it when they go to Reno? Here's the backstory. That guy, Brady Hoke, has done a great job at San Diego State, inheriting what Rocky Long left behind. Rocky inherited what Brady gave him the first time when Brady went to Michigan. However, historically... This group of head coaches have hired quarterbacks, recruited quarterbacks, used quarterbacks who managed games and didn't win a lot of games. They kind of a pedestrian offense. I'm not going to say it's Neanderthal to run the football 55 times a game because they've won because of it. They run it and they play great defense. However, in this era where everybody in college football is throwing the ball down the field, and the fact they're in Southern California where all the high schools throw the football down the field, not to have legitimate stud passers or offensive coordinators who can create things with a vibrant passing game means they're a little bit behind the power curve. Well, they complicate that with a rebuild in the offensive line. You add into the equation the quarterback who is supposed to be the starter out of Virginia Tech, Braxton Burmeister, has been hurt three times in five games with a concussion now, the latest, and he's been out. Jalen Maiden was a quarterback, transferred Mississippi State. That is Southeastern Conference, you would assume. There's talent there. He just never got much of a chance to play. And he fell down the depth chart as the Virginia Tech transfer came in, as they recruited the kid from Arizona, Will Haskell. And then all of a sudden, he's just not part of the equation at the position. Well, he went to them and said, I'd consider changing position. He's a great athlete. He's 6'2", probably close to 220. They made him a safety. And he took to that position pretty quickly, and he got a lot of playing time. A little bit at the end of last season, ton this season when they made the decision. But then when all the quarterbacks got hurt and Haskell transferred, Maiden went to Brady Hoke and said, I'll come back to quarterback if you want me, if we need to help this team. They force-fed him, gave him three days of work under the new quarterback coach, Ryan Lindley, and he comes out and he throws for 322 in the win against a substandard Hawaii team. He could probably do the same thing again against Nevada before they go to Fresno, which is the second road game in this this mini-series of critical games. The weirdest part is that when Maiden came out with a big game against Hawaii and Braxton Burmeister was finally cleared from the concussion, Brady had a tough decision to make. Burmeister said, hey, if you think he's the right guy, let me go play another position. Play wide receiver. And Burmeister's a really good athlete and a really tough guy. So how about that? You got two guys 
not necessarily competing against each other, who've gone to the coach and say, tell me what I can do to help the team, and Maiden's going to start a quarterback. They'll have a package for Burmeister if he has to go back to quarterback. They have a package of routes he can run off the route tree as a wide receiver. This is unique. This is really different. But here's here's the bottom line in, in my assessment of Brady Hoke, who I like a great deal, but I'm sorry. I work in a media. I'm going to ask the tough question. You had Jalen Maiden for two spring practices, two full summer camps, and you did not see how good he could be. And then out of desperation, when you have to play him, he goes 24 for 32 for 322. So it begs back to my original question we argued weeks ago. Do these guys know what they should do or could do or must do to develop quarterbacks at San Diego State? Because they've not. This kid has wasted two years of his life, and yet... When they have to play him out of desperation, he comes up hot. So we'll see if we'll see if Maiden can continue this. But he's big and he's physical and he's got a presence in the pocket, a little bit different makeup than Burmeister. We'll see. But San Diego State, the next offensive coordinator they hire since the firing of Jeff Hecklinski, he better be a recruiter that can go get a thrower, and he better be a coach with track record to develop a quarterback. Because I'll tell you, John, and I hate to be critical, you look at Snapdragon Stadium, there's nobody going. This is the shiny new football stadium. They're getting 20,000 now actual people in attendance, 20, and a stadium seats 35. You can't sales pitch me, we sold out all the skyboxes, everything's beautiful. It's not, because a year from now, because of the troubles they're having at quarterback and the, the offense they're running that nobody in San Diego accepts, San Diego cut its teeth on Eric Coriel. Mm-hmm and Super Bowl teams and all that, fans are not going to come back unless they change the personality of what they're running at San Diego State. So that's the challenge out there. I'm laying it right in front of the Aztec Athletic Center. Fix it. Fix the offense. Fix the offensive coordinator. Go get somebody who can recruit a thrower and can teach a passing attack to complement all the good things they have on defense. Yeah. First of all, it's amazing that both of these quarterbacks um, are willing to play other positions. Yeah. I mean, usually the QB is like, you know, got a head, you know, that's this big um, and a lot of ego. But these guys are team players. And so you like to see that. Now, to your other point, how did the the, the coaching staff not recognize uh, Jalen Maiden's talent? Well, I asked that question at the press conference on Tuesday and Brady glared and stared at me. He say, And he finally admitted, he said, we had so many quarterbacks. We had to look at so many different guys because they had veterans, mm-hmm. they had recruits, they had these guys who transferred in. He said, we just didn't give them enough reps. Well, that's on you. I don't care what the explanation yeah. is. You spend all these time with these guys. And I know there's NCAA limits about how much time you can be on the practice field, how much classroom work there is. But if this kid is the real deal, how could he have been here for two years and none of the smart people over there wearing red and black could see the dynamics of this kid because they had all the videotape of him in high school in Texas. And he get he flashed a little bit. He played briefly at Mississippi State. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna condemn anybody, but I have to raise the question: How could you go through two full calendar years with this kid on your roster? And not see the dynamics of what he might be. So, we'll see if he does it. If he does it in, in Nevada and comes back the following week, and they run at Fresno and can make a push here to have a good season rather than a 500 season. Well, you got a new offensive coordinator. You got a new quarterback coach. So you got new new eyes. You know, evaluating this talent, and they had a bye week, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens when they when they play the game against Nevada. The question I'm often wondering is is What's going on with Will Haskell? What is he thinking? You know, because he went into the transfer portal. Is he maybe kicking himself that he no. lost an opportunity? No, because everybody is in the transfer portal, and these these quarterbacks are moving, lock, stock, and barrel. Mm-hmm. And you know, Brady Hoke's favorite phrase during all the heat that he took over the last calendar month was the players' philosophy is, "I'm not playing." I'm not staying. <laughs> well, that doesn't fit Jalen Merton. Maiden does not fit Braxton Burmeister. Now, one other note in college football. I love big games, and this is a big game, John. It doesn't get any better than this in the Pac-12. Yeah, I mean, the teams up in L.A. have been playing really well. So now Chip Kelly, you know, he's, he's transformed that UCLA program. You know, Lincoln Riley is doing great things in U, at USC. So it's, it's really turning into a great Pac-12 season. And what a great game we've got early afternoon on Saturday. This is UCLA. This is Oregon. 
And this is Chip Kelly's chance to take the step forward and show everybody he deserved the kind of money that he was given, even in this contract extension. Uh, they play the Ducks. This will be 9 versus 10 in the poll. The winner of this one gets a stranglehold on first place in the Pac-12 football race. Now, that being said, it's not the end of the season because UCLA still has to play USC at the end of the campaign. But this is a Bruins program under Chip Kelly that hammered Washington in a real surprise and then turned around and stun-gunned Utah. Now, this is the same Utah team that just knocked USC from the unbeaten ranks. Two really interesting quarterbacks. Dorian Thompson-Robinson is a fourth-year starter at UCLA. He's put up big numbers already this season. 1,500 yards passing. I think he's accounted for 14 touchdowns. Bo Nix is a rent-a-year quarterback at Oregon. Came from Auburn. They've gone through a lot of quarterbacks at the Oregon Ducks program. He's over 1,500 yards passing, 300 yards rushing. And and Bo Nix has accounted for a ton of yards running RPOs. Very dynamic team. UCLA's got a heavy-duty running back in Zach Charbonnet. Uh, Oregon's uh, lead running back, actually, they've got two of them that kind of rotate. Um, Fleming and Whittingham, which complement Bo Nix. I don't know if anybody's going to play any defense. Uh, they, the edge in the game has to go to the Ducks because the game is at Autzen Stadium in Eugene. Hmm. And that's like being in an insane asylum. <laughs> it's like being at Petco Park on it the is. field during the playoffs and mm-hmm. the noise. It never, ever ends. It's when it, on the West Coast. It's it's a, as great a venue as there was. I did games at USC, and we go up there, and we had really good teams. It was so hard because those fans are so unbelievable, and they're packed into this old historic stadium that sits – the fans are right on top of you mm-hmm. on the field. It's not, it's not like the Rose Bowl and the Coliseum, which is big and spacious and gorgeous. I tell you, Autzen Stadium is a tough place to play. But how cool a game is this? you got a, a Ducks team that got killed opening weekend. Georgia 49, Oregon 3. Mm-hmm. Now, that was in Athens, Georgia. And since then, they came home, and they've really gotten this thing in gear got a UCLA team coming off two big conference wins already and now looking down the barrel of the gun, the Oregon Ducks. I love big games, and this is a big one. Not the biggest of all time because we still got SC and UCLA at the end of the season. Yeah, well, we about maybe four years ago, we were, my family were doing college visits you know, for our kids, and we went to Eugene and went to a game in Austin Stadium when the Ducks were playing the Buffaloes. And it was an amazing um, environment, great energy. And then in the middle of the game, it started. Started to rain, and the fans just went crazy. I mean, because they just knew that's what made Oregon and and that environment so special. So yeah, it's going to be a terrific game. It's going to be must see TV. Okay, before we go to the final topic on the table, we want to remind everybody that we do our podcast every Thursday here, and it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on all the audio platforms. Uh, We invite you to subscribe, as John has explained, so that you can get the alerts, because not only do we do the podcast on Thursdays, then we add pieces, clips from our podcast for you to review during the course of the week. So make sure you subscribe so you can get the alerts. And on top of that, my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, it's all written. It is available every day. We put a lot of data, a lot of information up there. So do us a favor. You're enjoying what we're doing with our podcast. Now you owe me a favor. I want you to tweet, text, email, Instagram, message all your friends, invite them to check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, and you can also go to the podcast link on my website. Check that daily in addition to our podcast. Okay, final topic on the table. It's the end of the golf season, but the controversy and the conversation with golf not going away. Yeah, this has just been an evolving drama. It's like every few weeks there's something going on with Mickelson, with the PGA players, with the LIV Tour. I mean, what's the latest? Phil Mickelson wrapping up the season. PGA season is complete. The, the, the LIV, the Saudi Arabia Super, Super League, is finishing up with his final couple of tournaments and big money paydays. Mickelson comes out of the clear blue sky again and starts critiquing the PGA. And he goes public this past week uh, with, with the statement that the PGA is no longer what it used to be. He said the PGA as a tour is descending. 
He said, LIV is ascending. And he challenged the guys who stayed behind, who stayed loyal, the Rory McElroys of the world. He challenged them to this question. Where are you going to be in 2023? Which side do you want to be on? So Phil Phil takes his stick and stokes the fire all over again. And he got his money, hadn't played well. He's had a sixth-place finish, and every other finish has been anywhere from 20 to 45. So he's in the twilight of his career. He got his payday, but he just won't leave the PGA alone. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible how this is evolving. It makes you wonder, like you say, it's a power play, LIV, PGA. Is one going to rise up as a dominant and is one going to go away? Is this a competitive league kind of like the USFL was against the NFL that failed eventually? Or are we going to have two strong golf leagues, essentially, or two strong golf tours that are going to be competitive? Well, there were a total of 28 PGA guys led by Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, 28 guys jumped, went for the guaranteed money. Interesting to see what transpires in the offseason. You know, are they going to offer a significant amount of money to the next budding star? Is that Cam Young? Is that Xander Shoffley? Uh, is somebody else going to jump? Now, it's not a heck of a lot of veteran names left. McElroy says, no, don't call me. I'm not coming. But who else might defect and does that bring the PGA to its knees? Yeah, I, I think the intangible thing about this conversation, John, and we've, I think it's about the third time in, in the history of our podcast that we've had a conversation about LIV. It's really like they're not on anybody's radar. Do you know when the next LIV tournament is? No. Are they on TV? No. no. Uh, uh, do they get their stories and their stats reported like the PGA does? No. So I don't. I, they're not in the public image on the mind of sports fans very much at all, and they still don't have a TV contract going forward to next year. So I'll be intrigued to see what the offseason brings, and intrigued to see whether there's another wave of defections. Okay, you want to do fans forum? This is your segment. You're the one that created it. <laughs> have you got people up there who have messaged us on on uh, that want to state opinions, ask questions? Get yeah. answers, get yelled at. Go ahead. <laughs> we got some good good ones here. And, and this is from uh, Jesse Cottrell. Please don't let the Padres start Clevenger at any time. Well, Jess, they're, they're at a, a tough juncture because you have to give the ball to somebody. And I don't think you really want to go to a bullpen day this early in the series against Philadelphia. Because if you go to a true bullpen day, and that would mean starting Martinez and then going to somebody else, and then you wind up with Suarez and the other guys, then it, it really impacts you for what might be games five, six, and seven. So you got to be very careful as to what you're going to do with the Clevenger situation and the Manaya situation. The best thing I could say is you got two guys who have been starting pitchers, have had some good stretches, have gotten rocked. You give them the ball. If Clevenger can't get out of the second inning, then you give the ball to Manaya and hope he can give you four innings to get you later into the game where then you can go to your rotation. Because, uh, just you don't want to eat up all your viable arms in a bullpen game because then you would not really have them for the next games on. That's why Joe Musgrove Friday is so huge. Yeah, it's gigantic. So so let's say you're Bob Melvin, you're in the dugout. Now this guy goes to Jess's next question. Who do you start? Would, would, would you go with Clevenger to start? I guess I'd go to Clevenger and just see how many innings he can give you. He's had some starts where he, he's had a rocky inning and then he got it back under control. If he can go four and five, four to five innings without having the Phillies go crazy in that yard and hit home runs, and Clev does give up home runs, if he can get you to the fourth or fifth inning close game, then you give the ball to Manaya. You just don't want to have to start dragging everybody, and they got seven relievers. You don't want to start dragging all these relievers into this ball game because, like I say, Musgrove in game three, and then. These guys in game four, you still got five, six, and seven have to be played. Thanks for the question, Jess. 
Yeah, so got a couple more here. You know, Hacksaw, the, the fans are so happy you have the podcast <laughs> reaction. <laughs> so uh, but, You are right. We are bleeping brilliant. Thank you. Now, you know, this is interesting because I was asked a long time ago to do podcast, and I had tried to do podcast initially by myself, and it was just it was a real technical struggle. You know, this is from somebody who's still got a Royal Manual typewriter hidden in his garage. <laughs> uh, but the podcast has just rocketed, and that's why we, we ask you to spread the word amongst all your friends on Twitter and emails to sample what we do and philosophically whether you agree or disagree with what we say doesn't matter as long as you watch as long as, as long as you listen but thank you for the compliment yeah so it's uh it's the the best damn 15 so um and then you know comments about spanos i mean you know people are kind of zinging them here but it's great to have the fan forum there you know i see the comments of the people on youtube um people are just excited to see you back you know yeah. behind a microphone and you know it's it's kind of a slow build as we're getting this podcast going uh, more people um are discovering you uh rediscovering you and and i think it's on on the fans to to like to follow, to share, and to subscribe. You know, one of the most unique things, and you wanted to make a comment about the Chargers. Uh, I'm a huge Tom Telesco fan as a general manager. Obviously, Justin Herbert is just a great young talent. I would hope in my heart, having been the voice of the Chargers for 13 years, that that Justin Herbert would go 17-0 and and Dean Spanos would go 0-17. I don't know that that's possible. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I will say this. The most unique thing about the world of communication that we live in, uh, because, you know, after I worked at the legendary Extra 690, then I went to the Mighty 1090, and then I got bought out twice, and corporate radio came in and kind of destroyed both of our stations. I I went to Sirius XM. And I did. I was hired to do weekend baseball shows on. At that point, it was called the Home Plate Channel. It was really cool, and I would do it from home. And I actually went to the SiriusXM headquarters in Washington D.C. and met with all their people. And studios are phenomenal. And and then I started doing Friday, Saturday, Sunday night baseball talk, and I loved it. And I did it for well, two and a half years before the landscape changed and the network changed ownership, and they decided to use the nights to put a lot of play-by-play on rather than do live local talk. But I was fascinated by all the people who would listen to me nationwide from Miami to Maui and, you know, from Maine to Vancouver. I mean, it was phenomenal. And all these truckers who subscribe to SiriusXM. Mm-hmm. And we, we, they asked me to come in and do a really different show, which was right up my alley. So I hit home run for them to, to do a call-in baseball show late at night. I did four hours, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'd be coming out of games, and here I was. And I kind of took the same format. Here's what's going on in the world of sports. Here's what's going on in the world of baseball. Mm-hmm. Here's what Lee Hamilton thinks. And the people went crazy. And then the truckers would start calling because they're on the road. Yeah. And they're punching me up on their cell phone and they're listening on, on Sirius XM and they're in their trucks. And I started this thing. Where are you going? What are you hauling? And it just phones went nuts. I get these guys from North Dakota and these guys from Alabama hauling steel and guys hauling fruit out of Florida to New England. So it's absolutely amazing what technology is. And just think about this. So somebody has a Royal Emanuel typewriter in his garage is doing this live stream across the nation and to a degree around the world. So it's neat. I, I I hope you enjoy it. Hope you'll be with us every Thursday. Please subscribe and join us. John, have yourself a great sports weekend. We'll see what Friday, Saturday, Sunday brings us with the Phillies. And we might be doing another special podcast on Monday. I hope so. Go Padres, right? Have yourself a great sports weekend. Thanks again for being with us on our podcast. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.